and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Kamran Mirza of the Loyola University Stritch School of Medicine, speaks with Dr. David Fagenbaum of the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fagenbaum is the author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. We'll hear his inspiring story about living life as if it's overtime. We'll also hear their conversation about silos in research and medicine, repurposing what we've already discovered, turning scientific hypotheses on their head, social media, and of course, pathologists. Dr. Mirza is on Twitter at KMirza, and Dr. Fagenbaum is on Twitter at David Fagenbaum. Now here's your host, Dr. Mirza. This is the PathPod Podcast. Welcome to this episode of Beyond the Scope. My name is Kamran Mirza, and today I'm incredibly honored to be speaking to Dr. David Fagenbaum. David is one of the youngest individuals to be appointed to the faculty at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and an NIH-funded physician scientist who has dedicated his life to discovering new treatments and cures for deadly disorders like Castleman disease, which he himself was diagnosed with during medical school. Dr. Fakenbaum has been recognized on the Forbes 30 Under 30 healthcare list as a top healthcare leader by Becker's Hospital Review and one of the youngest people ever elected a fellow of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the nation's oldest medical society. Dr. Fagenbaum earned a BS from Georgetown University, magna cum laude with honors and distinction, an MSc from the University of Oxford, an MD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and an MBA from the Wharton School. He is a former Division I college quarterback, state champion weightlifter, and co-founder of a national grief support network. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks so much for having me. I have to tell you, as a hematopathologist, I am inspired by you, humbled by all the work that you've done. As a physician scientist, I am in awe of everything that you've been able to achieve. So really, it is an honor for me to be talking to you today. Oh, well, I feel the exact same way about you. And it is just awesome that we get the chance and, and have an excuse um, in the midst of these, these busy times to just sit down and catch up. I love it. I love it. I mean, this is definitely one of the silver linings like you talk about in your book uh, that, you know, Zoom has kind of made us connected, even though we've kind of lost our humanity and like meeting people in person. Uh, but I'll take I'll take the little positives that it has given us for sure. So, you know, I wanted to start with a little story. So when I was training as a hematopathologist during my fellowship, I, you know, we were always told about this one mimic of lymphoma, okay, uh, that comes by your microscope once in a while, and you have to recognize the features. And there was also this story, this like very exaggerated story about someone was about to be treated with chemotherapy for lymphoma, but the pathologist saw it and they were like, no, this is Castleman disease. So we all heard about Benjamin Castleman and, you know, what he described. And, you know, in, in many ways, when you compare it to lymphoma, you end up thinking that, oh, no, it's a benign disease. But as you know, it depends on how you define benign, right? Yeah. And so, I, you know, during the course of today's conversation with you, I'd love to get your thoughts on what we know now about what this is. Is this a reaction to another disease process? Like, is that what we're seeing? Is the pathophysiology itself the disease? And for anyone who's listening, you know, Chasing My Cure, which is in my hand, I was telling David, I have notes on it. I, it's an amazing book. So please, please, please make sure to read it. It is a an amazing read, an amazing memoir. So you. I have some, uh, some, some things that I've taken out from the book, and I'm going to kind of start asking you about those. And That's some of great. them will be more philosophical than others. All right. So I want to talk about this idea of naive enough and bold enough. To me, that spoke 
so many, like it, it said so many things. So tell me about naive enough and bold enough and how you found yourself in a situation as a, as a trainee in medicine with something that people couldn't define. Yeah, I love that you're starting out there because um, naivety and boldness usually don't come together, right? And so um, they usually, you know, usually you're naive and then, and then when you're less naive, you become bold. Um, but yeah, what you're referring to is that um, I was a healthy third-year medical student. I wanted to, to be an oncologist. I wanted to treat cancer patients um, in part to, in memory of my mom who had died while I was in college from cancer. And, um, and then out of nowhere, as you know, I became critically ill. I was literally in the ICU for months in critical condition. My organs were shutting down. A priest read my last rites to me. I mean, I was literally as sick as you can get. And so when, when you talk about the being, you know, naive and bold, that what, what occurred was that um, I survived uh, months and months of being sick. I eventually was diagnosed with, with the disease you described, Castleman disease in particular, the idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease subtype. And um, because I was just a medical student at the time, I was a third-year med student, that meant that I was very naive to kind of the way, the hierarchy of medicine, the way that like, it's just supposed to be done that I don't think anyone agreed that it's the way it should be done, but it just kind of has happened. So I was naive to the hierarchy of medicine and the way that things were supposed to be done. Um, but I had the disease, which made me really bold because I was like, wait a minute, I, just because that's the way it's supposed to be done, I don't really care. And and frankly, and I, I I wish this wasn't true, but if I didn't have the disease, I would not have been bold enough to question things, to push things, to make the progress we've made for Castleman disease. And and I, I like I said, I wish that wasn't true. I wish I could say, you know what, I would have you know fought the system, I would have pushed, but I, it really I think took having the disease to to give me the strength and also the sort of unapologetic feeling of like, look, I've got this disease. I'm going to push as much as I can. As I read through it and as it, the, the ups and downs of the story and then naturally your, you know, your personal life story mixed in with it. Do you think that it was that you were naive enough and bold enough at the time that this happened to you, whereby you were able to achieve everything that you subsequently did? I do. I think that if I was um, if I was not a medical student, I think that um, it would have been very difficult to, um, to if I was, you know, kind of pre-medical school, I think it would have been um, difficult to navigate um, the things that I was navigating. I think if I was post-medical school and I was in residency or I was in my career, I think I would have maybe lost some of the naivety. And I think I might have been, I think I might have been jaded to so much to say, like, I'm going to end up banging my head against a wall and then you know, I'm going to spend my last however many months, you know, not, not getting there because the reality is, is I think that's how, you know, many of us, uh, you know, sometimes feel with, with the way that medicine can really, um, you know, there, there are systems in place for very good reasons, um, truly good reasons, but sometimes those systems can really slow progress and innovation down. Um, and so, yeah, I think that if I was any earlier, um, I think that, you know, I wouldn't have had the resources. I think I was any later. I don't think I, I would have the naivety. And I think that um, I needed to have a little bit both. I agree completely. I often tell my medical students that as uh, I've progressed th uh, through my education, I feel like there have been 
borders being put down on my innovation and my thinking yes. outside the box. And I often tell them that I think that, you know, sometimes when they ask me questions about simple things like inflammation, and I say yeah. inflammation is simple. We both know that inflammation yeah, is yeah, not of course, simple. Of course. But, you know, the way they approach it is fascinating. A second-year yes. medical student you know, they can't put their arms around inflammation and that's how it should be. I feel yes. like I totally understand it. You know? Totally. And it's, and it's so fake because I don't, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think there's something about, um, you know, I definitely don't want to make any uh, political connections here, but like there's something about the establishment, right? And it's that, right. and it's not that the establishment is bad. There's nothing wrong with the establishment. It's just that when you think about the same thing, all day, every day, and you're part of the same system for years, you just become part of the establishment. And you, whereas when you're new to the field and you don't have a clue, I mean, you're, you're almost like, you know, uh, you, you bring this innovation that, that, um, that, you know, I don't think I have the, the same level of innovation that I did when, when I first got into the field. I, I totally agree with you. Right. And I love how you said that, you know, the frameworks are there for a reason and they're important. Right. Yes. But then breaking the framework and thinking outside the you know, box effectively yes. was a way, you know, it is your success story. You, you know, you are a living, breathing example of how that worked. 100%. Yeah. If we had stayed within the constraints of kind of the way things are done, I, you know, I would have continued to be treated with, um, with drugs that had been used in the past and that, um, that hadn't been successful in the past. And um, yeah, I wouldn't, I just, you know, frankly, wouldn't be sitting here today. And um, uh, of course, doing things new and innovative doesn't always guarantee that they're going to give you a new result, right? It could have been, I did this, you know, out of the box thing and I got the same result, but I did feel like, I felt like the only chance I had was to do something totally out of the box and it, no guarantees, but, but at least that would give me a fighting chance. And I'm so glad that you did. And I'm so glad that we're talking right now. This me is too. wonderful. So, you know, it leads, it segues nicely into another thing that you touch upon in the book, which are the silos in research and medicine. Yep. And I think that similar to what you've said, that obviously boundaries are important, but then breaking the boundaries and having those gray zones between them is, is, is very important. And, and right now we're at a junction where our medical education really from the 1900s, like, you know, hasn't necessarily, the framework hasn't changed and people are speaking about curricular evolution and curricular reform. And as a pathologist, I'm extremely, extremely anxious in a good way, I guess, uh, about where pathology will be in all of this. Right. And so, so give me your thoughts on how you see a successful future in medical education with, with the lens of research. Yeah, I think that um, we're certainly moving as a medical field towards thinking about um, molecular underpinnings behind diseases. You know, I talk about Castleman disease, and as you know, the term Castleman disease really just describes a group of things that look similar under the microscope, but we know that the etiologies are different. For some forms of Castleman disease, we don't have a clue what the etiology is, like idiopathic, multicenter Castleman disease. We don't know the etiology, but we do know the etiology of HHV8-associated MCD. It's caused by HHV8 infection. So, um, And then we include POEM syndrome caused by monoclonal plasma cells. So even within this group, we're combining things that are that have different etiologies, they just have similar appearances microscopically. And I think that where we're moving towards, which I think you'd agree with me, is to maybe get away from these sort of um, eponymous terms like Castleman disease that lump things together based on microscopes, which microscopes are very valuable. We are beyond, but we're beyond the scope, right? I think that, right. you know, as, as, as your podcast, good title, one. Really title good was, one. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, we're beyond the scope where it's, it shouldn't just be, well, you know, uh, in the 1950s, Benjamin Castleman saw things that looked like this. It's well now in the 
2020s, we know that this disease is caused by this, and we know this is caused by this, and um, and let's break things down on the molecular level. So I think we're moving towards that within cancer. I think that most fields, um, in my opinion, uh, you know, really lag behind cancer, and and part of it is just you know. A is resources um, and B is, um, you know, cancer is well suited for molecular subtyping, right? Um, versus a lot of these other things are not, not quite so well suited. But I think that we need to move towards that, move away from these, you know, sort of clinico-pathological paradigms. Um, and that doesn't leave out the pathologists. In fact, I think that makes the pathologist even more valuable because uh, the data that's needed may not be what you see under the microscope. It may be sequencing data. It's molecular path data. Um, I, I think that I think that's where where we're heading. You know, we call it idiopathic because we really don't know where it's coming from, which exactly. I understand, right? And so, in if you were to guess with all your ex, I mean, I would obviously say that you're probably the the international expert in this right now. I mean, who would know more about Castleman than you would? But if it's not HHVH, do you think it's a you know what they say a hitherto undiscovered stimulus? You know, mm. is so Castleman disease is obviously a response to whatever you know. It's an inflammatory yeah. response, really, to yeah. what's happening have we come any closer to understanding what that other inciting agent could be? You know, I'm, I'm so uh, frustrated to tell you that I, we've done a lot of chasing and we've run into a lot of rabbit holes and we still don't have a good answer. Um, you know, so just as we said, multicentric calcium disease describes a group of diseases where there's uncontrolled inflammation. The, the immune system just turns on and it, and it won't turn off until you treat it. I mean, that's, that's another thing. It's not self-limiting inflammation. It's not a flare of lupus or, um, or an acute infectious sort of appearance. It's progressive inflammation that will not turn off until you stop it with some sort of therapy. And we know that that can be caused by human herpes virus aid infection. So we know that a virus, um, a herpes virus in particular, can cause this sort of infection. We also know that patients with POEM syndrome who have these monoclonal plasma cells, of course, you know, sort of a precursor or a myeloma-like set of mutations can create a similar sort of cytokine storm. So we also know that malignancy can cause this sort of Castleman-like cytokine storm. But for the idiopathic ones, um, we bet a lot of time and effort early on that there was some undefined or or as yet dis identified pathogen. I mean, I think that's where we put a lot of our money. It's okay. You know, HHV-8, maybe it's HHV-9. Maybe we just haven't discovered the ninth herpes, human herpes right. virus, right? right? So we did a lot of work. We did VIRCAP-seq with um, Ian Lipkin at Columbia. We did PathoChip with Earl Robertson at Penn. Um, we've done uh, RNA-seq for evidence of pathogens in the serum with um, Danny Dewick at NIH. I mean, there's like three, you know, key Path, um, pathogen hunters, and we haven't found any evidence of. We find the we find the pathogen when we look at HHVA, and we always find HHVA. That, that's good, right? When you do science, it's nice to find find you know your positive control. But we can't find evidence of a pathogen in the HHVA negatives. So it's always hard to prove a negative. I, I'm certainly not ever going to be ready to rule that out because. There, there are, you know, there are reasons that that these things, uh, you know, could be difficult to identify. But it's seeming less likely it's a pathogen. I think we're um, with that in mind. Um, we've taken a bit of a step back. Um, for years, we've known that there are a lot of autoantibodies in patients that have Castleman disease. We've often thought that's kind of an epiphenomenon of like, you know, dysregulated immune system. Individuals with Hodgkin lymphoma, they can often have autoantibodies. And, and we don't think the autoantibodies are driving the Hodgkin disease. Um, we think it's secondary. So we've kind of always thought about Castleman's like that, but taking a step back and saying, okay, 
their autoimmune-like features. There's renal dysfunction that you see that's that's lupus or esque, or, or or you know, or, or you know, maybe complement associated. Maybe there's reasons to believe that maybe these autoantibodies are telling us that maybe maybe this could maybe be described as an autoimmune disease. Um, if you look in the lymph nodes of lupus patients and RA patients, they have Castleman-like features often. So maybe this is something in that sort of range of autoimmunity. Um, I'm not quite ready to, to throw my eggs into, the, into that basket just yet. Um, it, it feels more like an epiphenomenon right now, just the intensity of the inflammation, the lack of sort of regression, unless you really hit it hard. So I'm more in the camp that I think that there's some sort of germline structural alteration that basically alleviates the breaks on the immune response. So my, my, my view or my, where I would put my money at this stage is that those of us with idiopathic multicentric calcium disease harbor a loss of function mutation that makes it difficult for us to control an immune response. And so any immune, I mean, all of us are, we're bathed in pathogens all the time, pathogens that presumably, or we're, we're bathed in antigens, I should say, and, and antigens that presumably don't cause problems. And so maybe those of us that have broken breaks, if we are hit by that antigen, um, things just get out of control. That's beautifully stated. So now it's my turn to uh, do a play on words, just like you did beyond the scope. Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, chasing. Yep. So you are chasing, right? We I mean, are. You know, it's a, the cure, of course. But then I feel like we've already set you up for your second book or third book or whichever one. The chase continues. And, and totally. one day, one day the chase will end. And, you know, it reminded me of... Uh, you know, hematologist back in the day, you know, before my time, who was describing myeloproliferative neoplasms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was before BCR able was identified and before JAK2 mutations were identified, etc. And I remember that, you know, many times, even now, we historically look at what he said, and he described it as a response of the bone marrow to a hitherto undiscovered stimulus, right, which of yes. course we, we sub subsequently kind of found. Um, but in your case, could the, could the antigen be transient? Could the thing For that sure. started it just leave the system? system. Um, yep. And then the response is just uncontrolled, like you're mentioning. And so that's very fascinating. And, you know, and I wish we were having this discussion without your personal story in it, but then there might not have been the discussion without your personal story. So it's a, it's a necessity that we needed to have this, you know, the brilliance that you, uh, that you've been able to accomplish already. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I do think that it had, um, again, I kind of like what we're seeing being the conversation, I would like to believe that if I did not have this disease, that I would have found a career or found a disease area that I would have chased after with the same sort of like, I, I don't know if the, what the right term is, uh, ferociousness, um, right. intensity. Uh, but I don't know if I, um, I don't know if I, if I would have been able to, I think that the pace the, and intensity that I've brought to this, you know, it's been basically sprinting for a marathon for the last 10 years. And, and I don't know, maybe some people would argue, you know, why would you want to sprint uh, for a marathon? Um, and I, I don't know if I would have, I would like to think that I would have brought the same sort of intensity regardless of the disease area, but I will say with certainty that the fact that I have this disease and that I know so many people that have this disease and I know what they're going through on like, you know, a very, a very direct level. I think that's really just added sort of a lot of fuel to, um, to, to sort of my engine or my fire and chasing this, this disease down. 
So you mentioned the people that you obviously know, and uh, and I'm going to read out a description from your book uh, from Gary, who also has idiopathic multicentric uh, Casselman disease. And this is a description of uh, what he told you about or what his family told you when you when they first saw you. Uh, and they said that they told you that they had expected someone much older who, according to them, was detached, ailing, and preferred to be hidden away behind a microscope. And when I read this, uh, guess what I thought? They thought, you know, I thought that, oh, they thought you were a pathologist <laughs> because that's how, unfortunately, that's how people describe us. And so I'm really happy, you know, that they, you know, that they assumed that you might have been pathologist-like. And then also we both know that that's not what pathologists are like at all. That is not, no, if, if that's what someone thinks a pathologist like, they haven't met you, they haven't met Kojo Allen, Toba Johnson, there are a number uh, of, that they have not met if they think that that's a description. But no, I, I think that, and, and I just, I, I love Gary and his family so much. They're, um, they're amazing. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a general feeling in the public that, um, that, you know, physicians, um, that, that we are, um, you know, sterile and that we are, um, you know, uh, algorithmic and that we are not people and that we are not, you know, we don't have loved ones with these same diseases that we're talking to our patients about. Um, you and I were speaking about that earlier. You know, we've unfortunately both faced challenges of people that we just love so much. And some of the same challenges people we love so much as the patients that we we take care of. And so um, I, I that is one thing I do hope the Chasing My Cure has been helpful with. And I've I'd love to see that it's gotten um, sort of the broad readership that I had hoped, um, you know, that it, it's, it, it hasn't been a read, you know, just for uh, folks in medicine, but it's really gone, gone quite broadly. And um, what I like about that in particular, um, one of the things is that I think that it, it helps the, you know, the, the person who's not in medicine to realize that those of us that are in medicine, we're just like they are. And we are, you know, we are scared about things and we are happy about the same things that they are. And um, we make mistakes uh, just like everyone does. Uh, I mean, another reason why I, I, well, I guess I'll give you two more reasons why I'm really happy um, that I wrote, wrote the book. One of them is um, raising awareness around this idea of drug repurposing. We haven't started yet talking about treatment, but I, I hope we will. And, um, you know, the idea that there are drugs out there that could be repurposed for new uses, but they're just kind of sitting on the shelf. That wasn't something I fully appreciated in medical school because you don't really teach their drugs. You teach what they're approved for and what they were made for. You don't teach what they were approved for and that they might also be useful for because we don't actually know what a lot of these things might also be useful for. So that was really eye-opening for me. And as you know, that's become really, um, I would say almost my second um, passion is this idea of how do you get out the word, the word out and then also really drive forward drug repurposing. And then I'd say the third thing is just having the opportunity to share some of these lessons I learned along the way. Um, I'm just a different person than I was before I got sick. I guess all of us are different over the course of 10 years, but I'm really different than I was before I got sick. Um, and, and, a, and a lot of it is just because the things that I went through just like completely changed who I am and changed how I look, uh, look at life. And so the idea that maybe you can read Chasing My Cure and learn some of those things without having to go into the ICU or having to, you know, get chemo. Um, that seems pretty good to me. I'd, I'd, I'd much rather have just, you know, read the book instead of, um, instead of having to go through all this stuff. 
<laughs> I, I, my goodness, I, I totally appreciate that, and I totally hear you. And and I'm going to talk about both things. So it's so interesting. I know my my background is blurred, and obviously the people listening to us they can't uh, see me. But I'm going to unblur my background because I want to show you it's... that I had actually written drugs already approved as one of the things that I, I love to talk about because I think that you know that was one thing that really stood out to me when I was when I was obviously reading your book. Uh, that and and that I think speaks to another silo. Right. Yep. I mean, isn't that another silo about drugs approved? What research is out there? What can work and what can cross talk? Uh, yes. You know, and I think that, that that's such a powerful thing that, you know, there are things available out there which may get stuck in red tape, you know, which potentially could have u- utility, uh, you know, just in another disease around the corner. Totally. And um, I, w- I would love for us to really dig into it. I just, I have to share like a quick anecdote from today. I had a phone call with, um, with Bob McDonald. He was um, one of the most recent um, uh, heads of the VA and um, he, he, he headed up the VA under the Obama administration. And we were talking about drug repurposing. And um, uh, I was telling him, you know, that I'm, I'm just kind of struggling with the right analogies to describe this, you know, is it that we're talking about recycling drugs and using them kind of over and over again, could, you know, new ways. Um, and he actually pointed me towards a couple of pretty cool historical examples. I'll just share. I just wrote these notes down today. So the first one is that I didn't realize this, but Alexander Graham Bell, when he um, developed what would become the telephone, he actually was trying to develop a hearing aid. And so like, you know, what was supposed to be a hearing aid became the telephone. Um, I guess what was supposed to become, you know, what eventually became the radio was really just for ships to communicate with one another. It wasn't, you know, to eventually, you know, share music and news over the radio. Um, he shared about, uh, um, I guess, uh, the first computer was intended to track census data um, from, you know, the U.S. census, uh, uh, you know, not to serve as a platform for Facebook or whatever you might, might, might use your computer for these days. And so this idea about, you know, what something is initially intended for, that shouldn't be where we stop, right? So if serolimus is made for kidney transplantation, that's great. It's wonderful for kidney transplantation, but could it also be a treatment for Castleman disease? And so um, anyway, I just love that today, and I'm glad I get to use this already because just a couple hours ago, I'm talking to to Bob and, and now I'm able to use them. But I, I think that this is not something you know new, um, but we, we just, we have to figure out ways to fully utilize the medicines that we approve. You know, I have now I'm going to add my anecdotes to it. Please, so please. When I was in grad school, I remember Nobel laureate Peter, uh, Peter Augre or Ager. I don't know how to say his last name, so I don't want to mispronounce it. But in any case, he won a Nobel Prize for Aquaporin, the channel. And he, he came and he, he spoke about, you know, this, I mean, I, we were all in awe. We were grad students, like, you know, yeah. PhDs, and here he was, Nobel Prize winner. And he said that for years, and I, and I forget the details, but for years and years and years, he was doing Western blots on a completely different protein. And it wasn't working. And his research wasn't working. And every single time he would do a blot, there was a little bit of a blip of something else that he, <laughs> they, they ignored for years and years wow. and years. And then ultimately, when everything failed, he was like, you know, instead of like packing up research, let's try and see what this thing is. Oh and that gosh. thing was aquaporin. Like the oh word, my I gosh. Mean, you know, and it gives me goosebumps to think about. And I'm going to add another uh, anecdote. Sorry, because, you know, just talking, it's like I'm talking to a friend. It's amazing. I love it. Um, 
so my youngest, uh, you know, she's seven, uh, but she, uh, when she was two and a half, she was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Wow. And, uh, you know, she had a little bit of a limp and she was you know, walking funny and we were like, okay, you know what, this is just a little toddler walk and, yeah. uh, and stuff. But my wife, who's also a physician, very astute, she was like, you know, this is not a normal kind of mm. uh, walk. Um, and so and in any case, we did a whole bunch of things and she had like very full-fledged uveitis at the same mm. time. And we had no idea. Uh, and so, it, you know, as two physicians, it was it just really took us aback. In any case, we took her to an ophthalmologist and she's been on treatment and we're so grateful. But the reason I mentioned this story to you is that, you know, Humira was not approved for GIA in children with uveitis, mm. but it was there. And I think that when my daughter's diagnosis occurred, I believe it occurred a couple of months after the clinical trial was was shut down early because of the benefit and it was approved. And I think about this and it gives me goosebumps that, you know, if she had had it six years ago yeah. or seven years ago, I mean, you know, that, you know, the drug wasn't even available probably. And then it wasn't approved for what she was, you know, what she needed it for. And that is such a blessing for us when we think about it, because many of my, you know, her rheumatologists always talk about this, that they don't call it Humera, they call it Humiracle, you know? And of course I get no royalties from Humera and this is not a, (laughs) you know, it's not anything to do with Humera. And so it's just that my daughter is on that treatment. Um, But that's miraculous to me, you know, this idea that the drug was out there and it has benefited her, you know, and I'm so grateful for it. I totally agree. I I love that story. I'm so glad that, that she's doing so well. I mean, I think about when I hear that story, I think of two things. Um, just like you say, I think that it is so wonderful and it gives me goosebumps to think that this drug is helping her um, when this is not what, what Humira was developed for, right? It, you know, this is a you know, secondary indication. At the same time, that immediately gets my brain on how many other drugs and diseases are just waiting to be matched, right? Like, you know, the JIA, Humira, you can, you can make a direct you know, line there. Um, but frankly, no one had made that direct line until they did the big trial, right? But think about all of the other potential direct lines that could be drawn, or maybe even indirect lines. Right now, in the middle of this COVID pandemic, fluvoxamine is the drug that that really just blows my mind. So fluvoxamine was developed for obsessive compulsive disorder. It's an SSRI, yet it looks to be quite effective at treating outpatient COVID-19. And the, and the way that it does it has nothing to do with its effect on the brain. It actually has to do with the fact that it's this really impressively powerful anti-inflammatory drug. And so, and the only reason we know that is because the year before the pandemic, these brilliant researchers they, they have this, uh, this sepsis model uh, or this mouse, uh, basically mouse sepsis model where they, um, uh, they infuse feces into the, into the bloodstream of the mice and the mice all die. And then they try various immunosuppressants to see if they can save these mice. And they decided to use fluvoxamine and all the mice survived and, and they worked it out that it's through this anti-inflammatory mechanism. So when COVID emerged, they started giving fluvoxamine to people. And now fluvoxamine is one of three drugs that's in the government's largest it's a trial called Active 6. And I actually had the, the incredible honor of being on the treatment selection committee for Active 6. And, and we picked fluvoxamine based on the promising early data. And we'll probably find out in the next few weeks the, the big readout, and I suspect that it will be positive. And, and so this is a drug that there is no reason that anyone in the world would ever think to use fluvoxamine for a virus or for any other inflammatory condition. But brilliant researchers kind of randomly, you know, tested on these these mice with feces in their blood and it saved the mice. And and so 
to, to what I was saying earlier, it gets me so excited because it's like, this is amazing. Fluoxetine is going to help people. But gosh, how many more things are there out there that, that we're just kind of waiting on random chance to, to, to collide? And what can we do to, to get rid of the chance and to just you know, collide them ourselves? One of the molecules I worked with during my PhD, it's a transcription factor. And there's an antibiotic that has uh, anti-transcription factor activity. And wow. that transcription factor is upregulated in a bunch of cancers. And, you know, and I, and I guess what we're describing, what you and I are both describing, I don't know how to, how to explain it, but it's more like a, it's an optimistic frustration, you know? Yes. It's an optimistic impatience that we yes. have. And naturally, the, you know, safety protocols have to be followed, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, sometimes science is interestingly done when you, I know that this is from like my PhD mentor is probably going to like, you know, be really <laughs> mad that I'm going to say this, but sometimes the hypothesis can be driven the opposite way, right? I mean, why not yeah. have an antibiotic that let's say is uh, against a transcription factor that is pro-proliferative, then maybe that can help, you know, re-anneal endothelial junctions. Maybe it can help cancer. Maybe it can help, uh, you know, inflammation. Totally. Uh, and so, I, and I understand that in graduate school, you can't think like that because that's not the right way to yes. think. But if anything, you and I, like our conversation is proving that, you know, perhaps some outside the box thinking is, is the best way to go. Totally agree. And I think that um, there's the impatience that we're both feeling. There's the optimism, the excitement, the impatience. But I think what's maybe the frustration that comes from this is knowing that if it's an FDA approved antibiotic, then chances are it costs dollars per pill which means that there is no company that will ever do a clinical trial to prove that that a dollar a pill is effective against cancer. I mean, I, there's just it just won't happen. And so, what's tough is then to say, wait a minute, if you don't ever do the trial, you'll never know if it works. And so, it's not that you know there's and and for anyone listening that's not in medicine, I think the takeaway is not to say that like doctors or pharmaceutical companies are doing these bad things to like hide drugs. The, the, the problem is that it's not that someone's going to do the trial and prove that it works and then leave it on a shelf. It's that no one will finance a trial like that. And you could get federal funding to do a trial like that, but it's really hard to get like tens of millions of dollars of federal funding to do a clinical trial that is basically impossible of something where, um, you, you know, like that. And so I think that that's what's tough for me is to say like, okay, we can make these incredible connections, but we won't ever be able to prove that connection unless we do a big clinical trial. And we won't ever be able to do a big clinical trial unless we shake up the system. Like in, in my opinion, I think we need another agency between NIH and FDA. NIH does incredible work to, to make those sorts of discoveries and to make those linkages and to fund graduate students like yourself who can find that. And FDA is kind of waiting for you to bring a giant clinical trial with, you know, you know, a hundred million dollar clinical trial of data to them, but there's a lot that has to happen between the two, right? You know, you got to figure out the transcription factor, you got to do the trials, and then you got to take the FDA. And, and I really do believe that the federal government needs to have an agency that's between the two that that says, look, no one's going to fund this, but we have you know a multi billion dollar budget, and this could be a really important drug um, for the for the human health, for just public health. Let's do it ourselves, and and that that currently doesn't exist. Talking about data and like trials, et cetera, you mentioned, and this really resonated with me, um, the strength of social media and collecting data. Yep. Uh, you know, one of our, uh, one of my colleague and very good friend, pathologist, Dr. Jared Gardner, he has, he runs 
helps all of these patients with rare diseases, rare sarcomas. You know, he's a soft tissue and skin pathologist. And he has Facebook groups and he helps. He's gone and given talks and met families and done all of these amazing things. And he also speaks similarly about the power of Facebook, for example, or social media, where he got all these individuals together with this extremely rare disease that no one institution, no one IRB could cover what they were able to do. And you you draw a very similar parallel kind of conclusion. And, you know, social media is where you and I technically met, quote unquote, right? Yeah. And so so let's talk a little bit about social media and, and how that can benefit the conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up. I think that um, social media for all of its, you know, ills and issues, um, you know, it, being able to find people um, that, yeah, that aren't stumbling upon your clinic or my clinic anywhere in the world is just so important. Um, the idea that we used to be constrained by the number of people that come to you know a single hospital to learn about that disease seems seems crazy. But um, but you know where we are now is that in fact a lot of people are still even though the internet is available and even though it could be utilized they're still doing cohort studies with people at their institution which for a really common disease that makes a lot of sense because you can enroll hundreds of people with breast cancer for example um, unfortunately uh, uh, but but for a very rare disease um, you're just not going to enroll hundreds of people at any one institution and so if you want to learn about the disease you've got to go either across institutions or separate from institutions. And, and as you know, I talk about in Chasing My Cure quite a bit. We started out by really focusing on going across institutions, bringing institutions together. And then I got really frustrated after a while because there were MTAs, material transfer agreements, that literally took years, like three years to get an agreement in place between two institutions. Three years just to say, sure, we can send you some frozen lymph node that no one in the world cares about except for David Fagenbaum. Uh, I mean, like, you know, th that's that's nuts. So anyway, we basically said, okay, we always are going to try to facilitate collaboration between institutions. That's like, it's in our name. It's the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. So we'll never stop doing that. But in addition to facilitating collaborations, we're also going to go right to the patient. We're going to create an online consent where anyone anywhere in the world can consent online. They can give us permission to get their medical records, give us per permission to obtain any excess tissue, archival tissue that they may have banked. Um, and we're just going to go right to the patient. And the patients were thrilled because they're like, yeah, I want my data to be used. I want my samples to be used. And um, that, that's kind of the approach that we've taken. And, and obviously always thrilled to share those sort of protocols with anyone. I love that. All right. So as a pathologist, there's uh, no way that I could have uh, ignored the fact that you mentioned Dr. Elaine Jaffe, who I love. Yes. And NIH. She's amazing, obviously a lymphoma and a lymph node pathology queen. Uh, and then obviously I'm a hematopathologist too. Let's talk about pathologists for a second. You know, Please. I think that we're important for the conversation many times, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, some uh, created by our own selves and some created by the establishment. They may not be part of the discussion, but, you know, give me your thoughts on the pathologist and where, how pathology training should be? Well, first off, I love pathologists. I mean, that's just like, that's just bottom, bottom line. I, I, I love I we pathologists. Can, we can stop the podcast now. I think that's it. We, you know, it doesn't get any better. I'm just <laughs> no, true. I mean, I, so, and, and so that's, that's in all seriousness, I love pathologists, but no, I think that um, the few things that, that I would say, it, there are some diseases where 
the pathologist is absolutely essential to the disease. And as you know, there are some diseases where the pathologist is not essential to making the diagnosis, right? I mean, that's just the way that it is. Castleman's is one of those diseases where the pathologist is really essential, right? So no clinician can say, I think someone has Castleman disease unless there's a pathologist who said this is consistent with Castleman disease. So, so in that way, I'm in a disease world where at the end of the day, you can't even diagnose it without a pathologist. And so as a result, I've had the incredible opportunity to work with so many pathologists and to be really wowed and just in awe by, um, by the talent that, um, that so many pathologists have. And so, you know, the ability to pick up patterns and the ability to think across, you know, boundaries is, is really incredible. So, um, but I think part of it, like I said, is informed by the fact that I'm in a, in a disease where pathology is, is the thing, um, to, to make the diagnosis. Um, I think that I, then in terms of like kind of my color about um, the comments I'd share about about pathologists, I, I think that it's such a cool specialty in that you have time to to think about the problem. Um, you know, when the patient is in front of you, you don't really have too much time to think. Um, uh, and you know, when you've got a decision to make on short notice about treatment, you sometimes don't really have all that much time to think in pathology. You have time to think about the problem. Um, you can be really thoughtful. You can collaborate really easily. Um, it's not uh, it's not like in the clinical world where um, somehow you have to download, you know, six months of history in, you know, one minute. You can just look at tissue and, and so, or you can look at data. So, and then I think the, the third thing that I think is cool is, um, is really the sort of explosion of big data and how people are using transcriptomics to subtype diseases in ways that used to be subtype by eye and, you know, molecular diagnoses are just really, really impressive. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, everything in life has something to do a bit to do with marketing. And I think that there could be improvements in the way that, that the pathology community markets itself. And I think podcasts like this are great, honestly. Um, but yeah, the question is, how do you, how do you make sure that a pathologist is, on the podium at ASH at the same frequency as a clinical trialist? Um, you know, and I think, I think that's, that's a big question. Love how you mentioned, obviously, thoughtfulness, but then also integration of being a physician, data, and, you know, what we're seeing under a microscope, right, digitally or actually under a microscope. And I think that, you know, that really underlies that. And like part of my struggle, or I guess my passion has always been for medical students not to become pathologists. It's not that we want thousands of pathologists to be created. You know, we, we have a lot of pathologists, which is great. But for everyone to make an informed decision about the subject, yep. right, nobody goes into medical school thinking that I'm going to become a pathologist very rarely, very rarely, right, mm -hmm. rather than medicine and surgery and urology and anesthesia, et cetera. Yep. And so I think that, you know, conversations such as these and, you know, situations such as yours, for example, if they are the ones that bring that role to light, you know, uh, happy to, you know, and this is path part. So, you know, path is from pathology. So, you know, podcasting, I think, has been a really great way I, for us to take these conversations beyond, you know, our departments where obviously people are all on the same page. And then obviously discussing things with people such as you is, um, is, is very, very helpful. So I want to now talk about, you know, as we wind down a little bit, I want to talk about, you, you mentioned multiple times about time and overtime. And I, and I love that. And in your dedication to your family, you say you taught me how to live and supported me when I was dying and inspired me to chase cures for my disease. And, and I guess, I mean, I, I don't want to be sappy or philosophical, but, you know, this is such a powerful book and what happened to you and what you 
did subsequently is so powerful. It is really a gift to the world. And like you mentioned earlier in this in this interview, you talk about is it would it would just be easier if you had just read about it. And I am in that boat. I read about it, and and I and I love how you talk about time and overtime and how to live. And so, what would you offer the people listening as I, I don't know a nugget of wisdom about time, overtime, and living? Sure. Um, yeah, I've, I guess I've not only have I gone through, but I guess I've put a lot of time into sort of reflecting on this, right? I mean, none of us have time to reflect on anything, but in, in writing this book, it, it, I was kind of forced to, to reflect on, on things like time and life and hope and, um, you know, basically the things that I learned, but that I kind of like put in the back of my brain because I didn't want to bring, I didn't want to have to think about them anymore because they were, you know, a lot of them were really, really painful um, realizations or memories or, or insights. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, the first thing that I would encourage the and anyone listening to do is to um, think about your favorite sport and think about when that game goes into overtime and think about uh, maybe like put yourself in the shoes of of your favorite athlete who's playing that sport and think about how much more intense they are in overtime. You know, there's the there's so much focus. The start of the game, you can screw up in the first quarter and you can make up for it. But in overtime, you you can't. Like there's this incredible focus and intensity. And um, the reason for that is because the clock is ticking down. It's time you didn't think you'd have. So you're like so appreciative because you could have just lost the game. But you actually got this extra shot, right? So you got extra time, but the time's kicking down. In some sports, you don't know how long that's going to be. If it's sudden death, we're like you know, if the other team scores, the game's over. So you, you, there's so much uncertainty, which creates focus. And um, that analogy just perfectly fits how I felt ever since the first time I, I nearly died. It was, um, uh, it's this feeling of, okay, I've got extra time. I didn't think I would have, I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, but boy, do I want to squeeze every little thing out of this time. Um, and I'm not going to make any mistakes. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to waste time. You know, you're going to make mistakes, um, but, but I'm not going to waste time on things that, that, that aren't worth doing, things that I'm not really passionate about. And, and as I think about that, I think to myself, wait a minute, did I need to almost die to realize that? Because it really, ha- frankly, it, it objectively hasn't actually changed. Like I still, you know, I'm not sure what my time is going to look like. And, and actually before I ever got sick, I still wasn't sure what my time was going to look like as much as none of us wants to think about that. Um, but it did bring it to full light for me to like, wait a minute, I'm in overtime and wait a minute, we're all in overtime. Wait, like we should all be living like we're in overtime. And, and I don't, I don't want to say that in like a, a luxury way, like, you know, you need to do this, this, and this. It's just to say like, like for me, it was just kind of like some of the the brightness of life kind of came through, and some of the like the blinders that I think we that many of us have on kind of fell off. And um, so anyway, I think that in terms of life and hope and time, I think that the analogy of overtime, at least for me, it really resonates with with what I think is like a full 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 existence is 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 living like you're in overtime, not living like you're in the first quarter because. Unfortunately, you know, we don't actually know if we're in the first quarter or if we're already in overtime. Um, and so, um, so that's one thing I'd say. Another is that the only reason I'm here right now is because I had a mental shift in my brain. I went from being a very hopeful person that really kind of believed that like things worked out the way that they should work out to saying, wait a minute, 
I can't just hope that things are going to work out. If I hope for something, I should do something about it. And of course, doing things doesn't guarantee you you're going to get the outcome you want, right? Like you can do a lot of great things and then it just doesn't work out. But I realized that if I wanted any chance of that good thing working out, which in this case would be survival and getting married to Caitlin and maybe having a family one day and being a a physician scientist, if I wanted any of those things to happen, I had to take action. It wasn't going to happen on its own. And and I guess we've alluded to it a bit, but as as you know, that taking action ended up being a series of tests on my samples, my blood, my lymph node um, that eventually uh, coalesced in identifying that the mTOR signaling pathway maybe uh, or, or was highly activated in my samples and that maybe an mTOR inhibitor could be helpful. And so, and you know, now here I am, it's actually been over eight years that I've been in remission on this cheap, freely available old drug that, you know, no one had ever thought to try. And so, you know, for me, serolimus is kind of like, I guess, you know, the telephone, it started out as a, you know, as the hearing aid, uh, but now it's the telephone and it's this new use that, um, that of course has brought so much value to me and my family and, and to other patients with Castleman disease. And so, yeah, let's, let's live in overtime. Let's reflect on if we're hoping for something, let's turn it into action and let's always think about new uses for old things. You know, wh- you know, what's the next thing that you can turn, you know, from a hearing aid into a telephone or from a kidney transplantation drug into a castle disease drug? I mean, after that mic drop, I'm not sure if there's anything more uh, left <laughs> to say. You've heard uh, directly from David Fickenbaum here today, you know, from, from science to medicine, um, you know, to hope and action even in humanity this uh, this book that i'm still holding chasing my cure a doctor's race to turn hope into action is a gift to the world and honestly david this conversation today was a gift to me i'm so grateful for you coming and spending time with us and thank you very much for being on Pathboard. well i feel the same way and i just so appreciate it and i've so enjoyed this let's let's make sure that it's not too long before we have another conversation like this cheers free path pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends so go ahead send someone the link and be sure to subscribe to path pod wherever you download your podcasts path pod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice as always on the podcast any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers their affiliated institutions affiliated professional organizations other speakers on the program their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. PathPod.